0: I would like to acknowledge the Goringai people and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. The Goringai people are the traditional owners of this land where we meet today. Have you ever taken a moment to ponder what you've learned along the way? Joining us today is Gunter Swoboda, a psychologist, author, and speaker who has dedicated a significant portion of his life to working with men and boys.
1: Welcome to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. The host, Karen Sander, has the privilege of interviewing individuals from all walks of life, each with their own powerful and inspiring stories The guests share their life experiences, and in doing so, they celebrate the transformative magic of storytelling. To learn more, visit www.thestoryroom.au and explore the private membership area, The Backstage Pass.
0: One of his notable works is titled Making Good Men Great, Surfing the New Wave of Masculinity. And he's also produced a thought-provoking social documentary, Masculinity That Inspires Change, which delves into the evolving concept of manhood in the 21st century. With expertise in psychotherapy, counselling, coaching, speaking and authoring, as well as the development of the men's program, Gunther is today going to share valuable insights gained on his journey. And, the, and I need to mention, he's an avid surfer, drawing much inspiration from his deep connection to the ocean. But I almost forgot, Gunther loves music. So welcome, Gunter.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Let's dive right into this discussion on what you've learned along the way. And you have a unique perspective as a psychologist, an author, a speaker, and a surfer. Could you please share with us the journey of your career and elaborate on some of the specific realms of psychology that brings you the most satisfaction?
2: Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a biggie. That's a big topic. And probably I need to start with my migration experience to Australia because that's where I got in touch with the ocean. I come from a landlocked country, Austria, grew up in an urban city, Vienna, beautiful, historical, blah, blah, blah. And then my parents and all their wishes decided to pull me out of school and we're going to Australia, as 12. So it was a bit of a, both culture shock, but also just a shock. Um, so we arrived here and the, the friends that we had here took us to the beach for a picnic. And I saw the ocean and I fell in love. It was like July, but I still went in for a swim <laughs> with, with <that laughs> no <Western>. So <laughs> cast that forward, I went through high school locally, uh, you know, schooling the academic side didn't seem to really click here because I, I didn't speak English very well. I, I had German and I had schoolboy French but <laughs> no English. So that took a while to learn. and one of the things I took out of that was that anything pretty well is insurmountable if you stick with it. and And that stickability thing always sort of stood in my, in, in, in my good graces in a way. It's caught me through lots of stuff. So um, I, w- I wanted to be a marine biologist, good fit for um, a surfer, basically, who was also playing music. But, again, you know, everyone kept telling me, hey, there's no money in being a musician unless you get to the top. And I had some doubts about whether we could do that. Not for any other reason than it was such a competitive field. Um, The career counselor in year 10 told me there's no jobs in uh, marine biology. Go away, think about something else. Well, I had no backup. I was into reading, however, and I'd read widely from about 13 onwards in you know, religion, because my mother was quite a religious person, but she didn't put it on to anybody. Got into philosophy, thought philosophy was great. It was also, we're sort of coming towards the middle of the 70s. So there was lots of stuff about, you know, counterculture and psychedelics and all that sort of stuff. Got very interested in spirituality. Um, and I, I never picked up my HSC grades because I thought I'd flunked. And in hindsight, <laughs> in hindsight, uh, I, sh- I should have because when I look at my school reports that I found recently in my mother's belongings, uh, I actually wasn't doing too badly so I couldn't have pulled together a fairly good ATAR, right? Now, there is a very, very important lesson for boys and men in this, right? Because I just assumed I didn't actually gather any information, I decided, well, I'll try to keep this away from mum as long as possible because she's going to go ballistic. On the last day of January, she hands me a basically a little ad to go for a job and it was in a bank. Two, two, <laughs> two, two, two years in the bank and I was cooked. All right, I was done. It was
0: a little bit different
2: from marine biology. Yeah, well, it it was cutting into my surfing. The band had (laughs) disbanded basically at this stage, so life was looking a little dim. A mate of mine calls me and says, I've got to go to uni. I've got to attend a two-hour lecture, but then we can go for a surf, you know, on the south side. And I went, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Took a sickie, as you do. And um, within 10 minutes he was asleep. And I was just captivated by the topic, which was Introduction to Psychology. Well, there you go. I came out of that that lecture hall going, how do I get in, right? And all I could figure out was I don't have an HSC, so what's the take? So at the time, mature age entry was 26, which seemed like an age away. And the only other thing I could think of was to go to TAFE, but I wanted to short cut it and the only one-year HSC program was at Ultimo Taste in town. And so I signed up for that, which was Mm -hmm. actually – it proved to be a really difficult year. So that was my entrance into uni. I actually did really, really, really well um, because by that stage, you know, uh, I sort of learned to focus a little bit, not just on the surf um, and doing surf checks Uh, And so I got in and I signed up at Macquarie University. And when I enrolled, she looks at me, the academic advisor looked at me and she says, are you doing a psych major? And I went, yes, yes, Uh, philosophy, you know, as my second major. And she goes, you can't be. And I went, what? It was like an earthquake had in. And she said, "Uh, there's no statistics in this program. Didn't you check with anybody? Now here comes the lesson. One of the things I missed out on was asking for help. Ah. I always had to figure things out for myself. So I had gone through this journey without ever reaching out and going, how do I do this? What do I need to know? It was like on my own reconnaissance. And this is pre-internet, so it was pretty sparse. Yes. So um, the lecturer told me just sign up because he saw me, you know, because I wasn't going into a spin. You know, the shortest career in psych ever. And um, so I did. And it freaked the hell out of me because mathematics was never my strong suit. So I just always winged it. And this, and I literally, and this comes back to a little conversation here, and i had, I literally developed performance anxiety. So I became very, very fluent in uh, anxiety but not necessarily how to deal with it. And when he said, you need to go and see somebody, there was the light bulb where I went, you know, that's probably not a bad idea. Mm. And so partially I learned how to manage my own anxiety and to recognise that a lot of anxiety is about just simply in, in, in our head, you know, what we tell ourselves, our catastrophic fantasies. But the problem, the, the problem with it is, it comes with these intense physical reactions. Mm. Like you know, the day of an exam, I'd be dry reaching in the shower.
0: You yeah. know. wow.
2: And then I'd step um, into the exam room and look at the exam paper, and it was hieroglyphics. I thought I'd signed up for ancient history. Um, yeah. So so it really, my own personal experience in that, really taught me that there is in essence a process that we need to learn. Now, I'd also gotten into Zen Buddhism way before at about 16, 17, and a lot of the stuff that I was learning in counseling I could translate into principles out of Zen, you know, the whole mindfulness Um, Mm -hmm. You know, working with the breath, you know, staying in the moment. all those sorts of things become very, very valuable. So needless to say, I did statistics for four years, (laughs) which, you know, in hindsight was lunacy, but it worked. You know, I'm still not the best statistician. You know, I'm far better at psychotherapy
0: and psychology, but I can find my way around a, a research journal. So there's another um, a hat that you're wearing, and I, I take my hat off to you because maths wasn't one of my best subjects either. Um, and I did look at my HSC results, Gunter, and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I remember that day, and it's like you know two thousand dinosaur years ago, and it probably still plagues me today. But yeah, it's a it's a very interesting story you have. Gunther, you've worked with men and boys. What have you learned about your own masculinity that has profoundly influenced your therapeutic approach?
2: Okay, so let me structure that a little bit in the sense that I I was never very I grew up with a very strong mother who you you respected, right? And you and you loved, right? But yep. this was a woman who survived World War II in Vienna, bombs going off, you know, people getting abducted by, you know, uh, soldiers, all that sort of stuff. So I didn't recognise until I started doing psychopathology at Union that she actually suffered from PTSD. Ah. Uh, and And a, f- a really close friend of mine, his mother was in the same boat. She was German. And we would compare notes about our mothers, you know, and I have a, They're a little off, but we're not quite sure how. It's just you didn't mess with them because life was not worth living if you messed with them. (laughs) So one of the things that I learned was that there is really no difference between men and women other than biological in a sense, that women can do whatever men can do. Yes, men are somewhat stronger. But often women are smarter in working that one out. So you can move furniture in the, in the house without having a male to do it for you. And you go, mum, you shouldn't re- – it's just the drawers made out of, you know, oak, but it weighs a ton. Why didn't you ask for help? Because I can do it. Oh, okay. No argument. So I, I, I grew up in a space where the traditional stereotypes around masculinity and femininity – Really weren't reinforced. I, I learned some of that at school, but I sort of, it somehow didn't click. And so uh, when I started working with men, it was with combat veterans from Vietnam with post traumatic stress disorder, complex post traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, a lot of these guys not only were physically injured, but they were psychologically injured, but also morally injured. They, they they were forced to do things which went right across the moral code and so no one was talking about the moral injury we were talking about you know the physical injuries and the you know the psychological injuries and I started looking at what the discrepancy was here and I began to understand that we in our culture operate on a level of socialisation for boys and men that doesn't help them in crisis because we are fundamentally quite rigid. We have very Mm. fixed ideas and beliefs and attitudes about how we're so different from women, okay? Mm. Mm. And it... and it leaves us being quite inflexible, right, uh, mm-hmm. and, and rigid. And I went, well, you know, the whole point of treatment in, psych- in psychological treatment is that we need to learn flexibility. We need to be able to get, you know, out of our standard behaviour pattern into new behaviour patterns. But that behaviour is not just by interaction with the world. It's actually what's going on internally. So my, mm. my, think, my thinking fundamentally is a behavior, and we get addicted mm. to that. So if you're used mm. to catastrophizing, if you're used to ruminating on stuff, it's like an addiction. You keep doing it even though you know sort of somewhere in the background that that's really unhealthy. Mm. But the other mm. thing that I found was the, um, the, the issue with boys where they were modeling towards men. That has some seriously negative traits, and it's gotten worse now in recent years with social media than it was when oh. I started working with teenagers. yeah so we've actually gone backwards we have not gone forward
0: mm. uh,
2: yeah. so so the contrast for me was what I was working with, but my own beliefs and attitude, which was I was, I was very egalitarian, I didn't see why they needed to be like a gender gap, you know. I was absolutely blown out one day when my mother went to the bank to get a, a, a mortgage and they told her that she needed a husband's signature, right? and I was like, yeah. what? You know, you're the yeah. one who's working. You're making more money than dad. How is it that you need a signature by dad? And and she was incensed as well. She was just wrong, you know, like yeah. didn't hear the end of that for a while. Uh, and then I started looking at the sociological aspect and the historical aspect. And by the late, mid to late 90s, I realized that a lot, a lot of the mental health issues that we as men were facing were actually steeped in how we're being socialized. It wasn't biological. It wasn't genetic. You know, it, it was, we, we sucked up an ideology that was toxic.
1: Mm.
0: And
2: that's how it started. By the by, sort of early two thousands, I was starting to formulate this as more of an idea, and in in and it also had an impact on me because I I recognised because I started really deeply introspecting. I started to realise by this stage I was a dad. You know, we had kids in the eighties, and I wasn't typical as a dad either. I was, you know, I'm the one who gets clucky, you know. Like I love babies, you know, and, and a lot of, lot of people would look at me and go, you're a bit weird. Um, <laughs> my, my, because I couldn't get a job as a psychologist because of the first yeah. recession, my wife went back to work. She says, look, I, I, you know, I, I can go back to work, no problem. Used to home, look after, uh, you know, our daughter and, you know, problem solved. What a couple yeah, okay, no of So in so here's me in the mid eighties, the primary caregiver to my daughter for about a year, right? And um, had a really bad time with the mother's group. <laughs> they, they,
0: <laughs> they didn't accept you? They wanted you to wear a skirt. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, that was the netball. That was the Netball umpire. <laughs> I got cut off for being a little bit too lively on the sideline, <laughs> oh, <dude. laughs> but no, no. There were a number of women who thought what I was doing was fantastic, but there were a number of women who would just go, "Can't you get a job? Uh, How do you think that makes your wife feel?" Yeah, and I, exactly. I, like, I came away, I was a bit blown out. So needless to say, my daughter and I never went back, because um, mm. I, I was sort of like, I don't need this. Um, yeah. But again, I saw then the impact of how we socialized on women you know and and more and more I've started to pick up on these very subtle gender based messages that are actually you know toxic. Now, I don't talk about toxic masculinity because i don't I don't like the term, but uh-huh. you know it's the 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 ideology of patriarchy that we are based on founded on in our culture is really bad in fact I often say it, it kills more men than it often does women
0: uh, well it must it must also vary from culture to culture um, where it's more sometimes it's more you know very male dominated and more mm. rigid for women but we're not going to go there today
2: but, no, for me, my insight into who I am as a man actually became more that I'm not. I'm not, my, you know, in a sense locked into being a male. I'm locked yes. into being a human being, mm. you know, that,
0: which makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, but you've you've got a lot of people to work with on that, you know. Yeah. because <laughs> a lot of people aren't locked into it. I mean, there's millions out there that right. you know. Are, that are are exactly that way, Um, you know, they're they're locked into their own gender and not their, you know, that we're human, so so to speak.
1: If you're interested in getting more involved in our community, connecting with people who share your interests, you can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. I've been
0: listening to your podcast. I listened to a couple yeah. the other day on Inspire Change with Gunther. and you make it really easy for the ordinary person, I'm putting my hand up, to understand the topics that you address like ADHD um, and generalised anxiety. They were the two that I was listening to. Mm, mm. So reflecting on your podcast, can you share lessons from your personal life that resonated strongly with the audience and initiated a broader conversation on change and self-improvement?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to bring to my audience, really. But the main thing was I never liked how in philosophy and psychology we we almost have a different language that no one else can understand unless you're trained in it. And that irritated the hell out of me. I, I used to get really annoyed at uni saying, well, what, why can't we just nu- we can use normal day-to-day language to describe a lot? Yes, there is a need for technical language, but we overdo it at times, especially True. in philosophy. Philosophy is almost inaccessible, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's really useful for people to have access to philosophy, to psychology, you know, through being able to understand it without having and, you know, without needing a degree or a post-grad degree, it's a bit like, you know, IT, you know. We should yeah. never let, you know, we should never let engineers loose on designing a remote control. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, keep yeah. it simple. And the the, one of the, the lessons principle. Is, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me that's fundamental in life. If If I can't explain it simply, then I need to rethink what I know. Mm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like when you, yeah, like you, you know, go to a lawyer and they tell you something and you're going like, can you just explain that to me? Pretend yep. that, you know, that I'm a real dummy.
2: Yeah, yeah. I do that with my accountant all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <Welcome. laughs> so, so, so one of the things I wanted to bring to it is let's translate what is – Fundamentally, actually a really complicated body of knowledge But so people can get a hold of it and actually maybe rethink it. There's a a downside to this because since the internet's exploded, Mm. everyone through Dr. Google has become, you know, self-diagnosing and an expert in things whereas all they've actually got is, uh, you know, an opinion and opinions, mm. not necessarily knowledge. Actually, yeah. if you get a chance, there's another um, podcast that I did on From Data to Wisdom. Okay. Um, and, and one of the things that struck me recently was that I, I saw a quote by uh, David Attenborough, who I love, you know, bromance. Um, oh, yeah,
0: no, I'd, I'd run away with him too. Yep. I think the whole world would.
2: <laughs> and he, and he, the comment that he made was that human beings have become successful because of our intelligence. Unfortunately, the next thing that we need to actually survive is wisdom. And mm. my podcast, which I did ages, ages ago, uh, was, you know, are we actually losing wisdom? And I, and I fundamentally believe that's true. So when I decided Um, to tackle ADD, which seems to be at an epidemic level if we go by the diagnosis and the number of prescriptions that are out there, I think we're watching something other than what it actually is being touted as, as a psychological mm. disorder. My view is that it's it's a developmental problem that is actually much more embedded as an anxiety than it is as a separate diagnosis. And, I mean, I've been critical of the DSM-5, which is the di- diagnostic manual in psychiatry and, uh, and, and psychology for a long time because, it, it, in my view, it pathologizes human experience and I don't like it.
0: It's good that somebody's questioning it and, uh, you know, because you, if someone has to. Or things don't change, do they? No. Uh, Empathy.
1: Uh, it's yeah. something
0: that's really important working with clients Do you have a personal, can you share a personal struggle that you've experienced and how it helped you as a a psychotherapist?
2: Yeah, (laughs) that one's interesting. I I did a blog many years ago on how empathy can be taught, right? Um, Yeah. And because I actually do do that a lot working with boys and men. Because one of the things that happens when we're socialised into the traditional male stereotype, is it suppresses our empathy. You can't compete with someone else if you feel too much about their experience. Does that make sense? hmm So, you know, if you're going to compete and you're going to beat them, then you can't actually get into their emotional space because you might just go, well, I don't actually want to beat them. Mm. Maybe we could cross the finishing line together, which everyone would think was ludicrous, right? Mm-hmm. but it's actually a humanistic idea so um one of the things that's really important i think in empathy is that we need to have we need to grow up in an environment that nurtures it and i was fortunate enough on two levels um that empathy was was nurtured in my family but it was also necessary because of the trauma that my parents had experienced, mm-hmm. so so to me that became very very instrumental in in just being able to to put myself into other people's shoes and and sort of learn to know what to do with it as well. Mm. But the point is that I think we you know we need to teach empathy. We need to really focus on it and nurture mm. it. Because it sure as hell seems to be going out the window.
0: I, I, I believe that too. And a lot of people will give you sympathy as opposed to empathy. Oh, yeah. Not good. <laughs> I wanted to talk a bit about neuroscience role. Um, but mm. what significant event in your personal growth caused a change in how you view neuroscience's role in understanding behaviour professionally?
2: Okay, um, again, wanting the clock back. I kept doing wanting the clock back. You know, someone said, you know, the other day, well, you've got 40 years to wind back. I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> God, you know, I'm having a heart attack here. Uh, but it is, it's, um, it's over 40 years. In, when I couldn't get a job as a psychologist, and I then did need to go back and sort of start looking at what I was going to do, I actually did a stint as an enrolled nurse in aged care. Ah. And so uh, one of the things that I had a lot to do with was people with a certain level of dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's wasn't, wasn't as um, uh, prolific really in those days. It, it possibly was there, but we didn't sort of have a lot of you know, Alzheimer's patients. We had people with dementia on the wards and people with um, stro- recovering from strokes Mm. Right? And there were a couple of things that I learned. One is that you needed to be patient. There was no point trying to convince a person with dementia what day it was when they were convinced it's Friday when it's Monday. You it just don't waste your oxygen. Just go along with it. It's okay. <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> right? And they would often yeah. just sort of they come up to me and they go, So what day it is is it? And I go, So what day do you think it is? Oh, it must be Friday. And i go, absolutely, it's Friday. And some of the sisters and nurses would go, why are you lying to them? I said, I'm not lying to them. I don't want them to get upset. They'll forget it in five minutes anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, like, people would just look at me and go, what? Are you serious? And I I go, there's no point in reality basing them because they have a very different reality.
0: It's hard to get your head around that, isn't it, you know, that they have a very different reality because we've just been through a bit of dementia with my mum before she passed away and we actually had a clock on the wall that told her the day of the week that it was. I mean, there's amazing tools out there for telling them the day of the week. I don't know that it mattered much because every day ran into the other anyway. You well, know, oh, that's the point.
2: Absolutely, that's the point. Or, you yeah. know, try to remind the person of who's who in the family rather than just leaving it when that person will turn up and go, oh, look, it's Frank. He's come to visit. Yeah. You know, oh, nice to see you, Frank. And then you get the, do I know Frank? Yeah, you do. But it's okay because you know, tomorrow we'll have the same conversation and it's all right, don't worry about it. I'll tell you who Frank is tomorrow. And they're happy.
0: Yeah, and a- tell absolutely. us a little bit of the difference with neuroscience and psychology, just a really brief. When I was at university,
2: there really wasn't a lot of neuroscience. There was neuropsychology, which was as boring as anything because you spend all your time with clients, testing them. I'm not a big fan, as you can tell. Uh, but it's important. It is important. So I don't want anyone, if you want to do neurosci By all means, go ahead, do it. Someone's got to do it. Wasn't going to be me, though. Um, So neuroscience emerged out of the cognitive sciences, and because our technology suddenly exploded in terms of, you know, uh, MRIs and functional MRIs, PET scans, all sorts of Mm -hmm. stuff, we could see what was going on in the brain when certain things were happening. And there's a part of me, I mean, I've always been really interested in that, and if – if at the time I was studying psych, that was the pro- proper course or a series of courses, I could possibly have gone there rather than down yeah. psychotherapy, right? I like technology. I like tinkering with stuff. So this this had a certain appeal. Um, but one of the things that I like about psychology and neuroscience is that the things that we work with in psycho psychology and psychotherapy, we now can actually look at how we test it in the neurosciences. So what what actually happens in the brain and then what happens emotionally and behaviorally and so on and what uh. are the correlations, right? So in that, in that, this is very simply put, but in that context, it's massive. Um, a friend of mine who's a neuroscientist and I are working on a book together about, you know, sort of, Blowing up some of the gender myths, uh, and I come at it from a psychological perspective and sociological perspective, and he comes at it and goes, "Yep, this is what the science tells us." And it's amazing how much mythology exists in the community about how we function as human beings.
0: It's amazing what what has been learnt too in the last thirty years that yep. and. It's, it's phenomenal uh, just in terms of our, our health and well-being and our mental yeah.
2: health. Yeah.
0: You love surfing. Yeah. Have you been for a surf today?
2: No, no. I'm, I'm sort of, I've been grounded basically because I've had shoulder replacements. So I've just oh. started swimming again. So oh. we just sort of going okay. Uh, I've got a mat, a knee board and my stand-up paddle board and it's that succession that I'll be getting back in the ocean because I need to build my strength.
0: Did you go and look at the ocean today?
2: Yeah, it's all right. Been a bit choppy but <laughs> I do just, I do a surf check every day. It was a bit hard <laughs> after the last surgery because I was, I was still a bit over it and I am going, oh, I've got another nine months before I can go out in the ocean again. So I've got a bit
0: boring.
2: Mm. My son, my son keeps me up to speed.
0: I'm sure. Well, I can give you some um, surf reports from down the road too, you know, if you're right, watching. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, um, Look, it's a... <laughs> welcome.
1: If you're interested in getting more involved in our community, connecting with people who share your interests, you can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. Um, it's
0: a well known fact that you love surfing and music. What are some of the most profound lessons or insights that you've gained along the way? And how have they shaped your current perspective on life and career?
2: The first, probably the first thing is if you want to do either of them and if you want to do them well, you need to stick with it. Repetition is everything. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter to what level you, you can get it's still always repet- repetition is everything. There's a the mm. place when body memory kicks in, muscle memory, but that you know that only takes you so far. You need to keep practicing and, you know, it, does, it doesn't matter whether that's music or surfing and I'm sure it applies to other things as well, first one. Second one is if you want to do something mindfully and be in the flow, both of those teach you exactly how to do that because mm-hmm. if if you overthink either one of those it still sort of, it gets it, it gets you know artificial mechanical and so you know that whole notion of going with a flow and it doesn't just apply to music or certainly i i think that we need to think about how to be in flow with our life and a lot of us are not you know we keep fighting it or we keep you know trying to reinvent the wheel or you know you know if you've had if you have three failed marriages, you need to start looking at what you're bringing to the table here. And I'm not mm. being funny, I'm just saying, you know, to me, there is an immense value in learning and practicing and cultivating the art of living. Mm. And and we don't do that. We're too busy learning and cultivating how to do and shit. And that's
0: even more so today because there's all this new shit to learn all the yes. time.
1: It's <laughs> like it's
0: constant it's yeah. it's why many of us have become very good friends with Google and YouTube. Mm. I'm constantly mm. learning, mm. you know, through those two modes. Um yeah. but I want to go back to your surfing and your water journey um, and keeping you in flow. For me, swimming in the ocean Mm. um, brings me back to flow because while I'm in there, I like to just think about, you know, and and feel what's around me. Mm. And sometimes, Gunter, I watch my hands go through the water and I just watch the water gliding over my nails and to me it's like mercury. It's like, you know, just the way it falls over your hands, it's beautiful, and and I really yeah. enjoy that. And I, that. So, you know, I don't surf, but I have an understanding mm. of what it feels like to be in the water and how wonderful mm. it is. Of course, not everybody lives near the water. But. No,
2: but you can do it through other means as well. And, I mean, the important one, and this is where I often use it as an analogy, is imagine doing that with thoughts and feelings that you find disturbing. Ah. Just, just allow them, you know, like mercury to fall off your hands.
0: That's a really good technique. I'll have to think and sort of conjure the mercury on my yeah. fingers. <laughs> I'd love you to share a personal story or experience that you haven't talked much about before and how that has impacted your journey.
2: I, I think probably the biggest lesson is the one that I started off with, which – you know, the biggest impact was my capacity to put my hand up for help, mm-hmm. and and like in my relationship to consult with my partner, I I I never actually thought about it concretely or consciously, but I would I would sort of make unilateral decisions about myself, not about the two of us together, but certainly about myself, and then later on realised that hang on a minute, that actually had a major impact on both of us and a lot of times not for the better yeah uh, and and not and and with that is not ever ever be rigid about what i think i should do i mm. needed you know i mean i'm very good philosophically and in in my work to be flexible but i had to learn that flexibility internally i i mm. really i had to Several major wake up calls. Sometimes I go, geez, you we're a bit of a slow study on this stuff. <laughs> Fortunately, my partner's still in my life.
0: <laughs> She's been in your life for um, 10,000 years. <laughs> How many years have you been married? Uh,
2: we've been together 40, we've done each other 50, but we've been together 42. And we've been 37 years married.
0: Amazing. Congratulations on that. I mean, you're working in any relationship, but you have to work at it. And as you said, you know, learn as you go. Look, what advice do you have for parents of boys?
2: Okay. Don't under-nurture them and don't over-nurture them. And this is particularly with mums. Boys actually need more nurturing in some respects than girls. Mm-hmm. I've watched. I've brought up a daughter, and I, I mean, she's a very fierce unit. I mean, I wouldn't like to cross her at any time of day. Um, she really, she really holds her own. She's a very strong, very powerful human being. Um, and and one of the things that I know as a father of a daughter is that we need to be really present with girls. We also need to do that with boys, but we also need boys more so than any other way, allow them to sort of learn an emotional language, you know, telling them to look, you know, buck up and don't cry or, you know, you'll you'll get over it. It's not helpful for most boys. It just slots them back into that rigidity of traditional ideas of being a man Um, because they do, you know, by the time they're sort of early teens, they're wondering about that. So as a dad with a boy, for example, I need to be Mm -hmm. able to give that boy lots of different experiences, but also I don't do for them what they can do for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I got conned by my four-year-old with tying shoelaces. I didn't think he could tie shoelaces. And You know, we were trying to get out the door, and my wife one day said, why are you doing your shoelaces? And I went, because he doesn't know how to do them. And she goes, yes, he does. He always (laughs) does it. And I'm looking at him and he's got this angelic smile on his face and I'm going, you, Connors. Now, uh, kids aren't manipulative. They're opportunistic. If you can get away with it, you know, the path of least resistance, off you go, right? So boys in particular need to learn boundaries. They also need to learn consequences, you know, I watch parents go through oops and massive conflict in the family trying to get boys to do homework. Why bother? My my role in the family is to have relationships with my kids. This just alienates them. And there's really no academic uh, evidence that shows that homework actually makes an ounce of difference in terms of academic success. hmm and I'm I'm very blunt, and a lot of people will take humbug to this. But if you've got to study your backside off till you get blisters, you're not going to be fit for uni anyway. And I think we're forcing boys into roles that they either don't want to do, and I can relate to that. I went to uni out of choice, and because I was highly motivated. But a lot of the boys that I work with are there because that's what dad does or that's what mum and dad expect and -hmm. everything else is also devalued. If you go to a private school, you're not going to get a lot of brownie points for being a carpenter. Mm. And I think that that's disgraceful. Well,
0: it's interesting hearing your perspective on this as as a psychologist and psychotherapist because I think a lot of people get caught out with what the Joneses are doing next door.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, social media just makes it worse. Um yeah. we 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 have status anxiety at the rate of a, an epidemic in our culture. You know, everything's based on you know status and prestige and you know acquiring material wealth. And I know as a therapist and as a psychologist people who have all that stuff are, are still not necessarily happy.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: You know, so life becomes like a performance um, that we, we, we're meant to deliver rather than, as I said earlier on, is to, is to go with the flow, learn how to live in the flow. And if you're doing something, now obviously there are constraints not everybody can do for a living what really, you know, gives them joy and happiness and fulfilment. Mm-hmm. But I know people who do what I consider to be, you know, uh, jobs that I couldn't do. Like, you know, uh, say, for example, cleaning, or, you know, not that I'm not good at cleaning, but I can't see myself doing it 40 hours a week. But they're content yeah. with that. That's, mm. that's, they've made their peace with what they do. And I think that's a mm. wonderful thing. Mm. Mm. The problem arises when we're trying to, um, Live according to someone else's judgment. Oh, you, why are you being a cleaner, or why mm. are you you're a plumber? Oh, you don't want to be a plumber, uh, or you don't want to be a tradey. You have to be an executive.
0: It's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Are you working with many people at the moment? How do people find you if they want to know more about what you're doing?
2: So the easiest thing is go to, go to Google. Uh, go. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, I do <laughs> pop up really quickly. <laughs>
0: So oh,
2: you do. I've been stalking you. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's one way. Uh, there's two websites. One is com, and the other one is makinggoodmengreat.com. Um, and so, yeah, so there's also the phone, you know, office number. So, uh, yeah, I am actually working a lot at the moment. I've got about, I think, an eight-week waiting list. Oh, my goodness. Maybe more. You know. What's
0: the next on your journey? Have you got anything coming up that you're really excited about?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been approached um, – I'm not sure if I can go into too many details. Anyway, I've been approached by two anthropologists to become part of a research program. Wow. Um, yeah, so – and I'm currently exploring, you know, doing a PhD out of that.
0: Oh, that's a big, so, big task.
2: Yeah, I got really excited. Absolutely, I got really, really, really excited, and then the next morning I woke up and I had cold feet. But it's okay. It's, uh, you know, it just goes around, comes around. <laughs>
0: yeah, so, I understand the cold feet. You know, you go... And and you're probably a little bit like me that when you say you're going to do something, you actually just do it?
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: I think it's a good trait.
2: I do too, absolutely. But, you know, I've always held this and unfortunately, you know, we should be able to run a business by a handshake, but we can't do that anymore. And one of the areas that I'm interested in is in character formation, in other words, virtue and ethic. All right? Now, you know, it's, it's strange coming from a psychologist. And my view is that there is actually a connection in there, you know, between character and well-being. And I, mm-hmm. I want to, I'm hoping to be able to explore that more deeply. Because we're sure as hell losing not just empathy, but we're also losing virtue and ethic in our culture. I mean, if we look at you know, bullying, harassment, you know, people ripping other people off. So I think mm. we we'll need to start thinking about that.
0: We've talked about what a neuroscientist does and what a psychologist mm. does. And, mm. well, you've just mentioned an anthropologist. What, what's their role? Oh, there's a whole, when I was
2: in uni, there was only sort of one definition of anthropologist, which was looking at human evolution and, you know, the, the interaction with human beings with each other in the environment. That seems now developed. Like there are psychological anthropologists, biological anthropologists, there's a whole range, um, of areas of anthropology that have opened up. And I think anthropology, probably more so in some respects than sociology, is a good topic area for psychologists to explore because we, we need to shake up our biases, you know, that we, we bring to the table, whether they're cultural biases, gender biases. And as a therapist, remember, the thing about change is being flexible and adaptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I need to constantly question myself about, Is this opinion belief that I hold actually supported by evidence? Is it supported by, you know, different bodies of knowledge? And if I can pull that together, then I'm much more capable of making wise choices.
0: Good luck on that project if if
2: it
1: comes about.
0: I mean, uh, we're looking forward to hearing more about it. On that note, I want to mention again, is the Data to Wisdom, is that one of your podcasts?
2: Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. And so they can find that. Just help me Gunther at on um Inspire, Inspire Change.
2: Yeah, with Gunter, Yeah. And and that, that podcast is on all the platforms.
0: Oh, okay. Oh look, honestly, I love the couple of podcasts I listened to this oh, thank week. You. Um yeah. yeah. And look, you are an inspiring man. You've also been on my live event, the, the mm-hmm. story room. And that's where this podcast has actually come from Um, and it's Sharing Stories, Changing Lives, which which is the tagline for Mm. the story room. And thanks again for sharing your wealth of knowledge on stage there.
2: Oh, you're welcome. I loved it. I, I think what you're doing there is great. We need more of that rather than less, you know.
0: Well, they'll be available soon in a private members' area. So you have to watch this space because I'm about to mention it shortly.
1: <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's excellent.
0: It has been an amazing experience to have Gunter on uh, the program today. But what an inspiring person you are, Gunther. But you're truly you. an authority in your field, working with men and boys. If you'd like to grab a copy of Gunther's book, Making Good Men Great, you, could, you just find it on Amazon. I believe it's good practice to reflect on what you've learned along the way. We're often in so much of a hurry, we forget to take the time to reflect and learn from our life experiences. So why not find a quiet space and make a list of the things you've learned along the way? And I'm sure you'll be surprised at all that you have learned. And if you have a favourite inspirational story, go to the website and send it to us. Once again, thank you to Gunther. For joining us today. Thank you. And I leave you with an anonymous quote based on the themes, lessons I've learned along the way. Celebrate the lessons you've learned along the way, for they are the stepping stones to wisdom that guides your journey.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. We'd like to invite you to support us by purchasing a backstage pass costing about the same as two cups of coffee each month. With the Backstage Pass, you'll gain access to workshops and exclusive content, including videos from our live events. You can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. We can continue to show that sharing stories changes lives.